0: Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator and coach. I have taught and worked in schools across metropolitan and regional Australia and I am dedicated to supporting big-hearted educators to prioritise their wellbeing and take courageous action despite the everyday pressures of school life. Because I want educators to know, you don't have to sacrifice your health, relationships and happiness to be a great teacher. Together, we are going to learn the lessons to help us teach well and be well. Let the learning begin. Hello and welcome to Episode 72 of the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am so glad that we have found each other. Think of me as your personal wellbeing coach, and I have a feeling that you're going to love today's conversation with clinical psychologist Chris Cheers about his fabulous new book. The new rulebook notes from a psychologist to help you redefine the way you live. As we move into a new school year, it can be really helpful to select a word, quote or motto to give you a focus for the year ahead. This year, my word is space. I am committed to creating space for what's really important to me. As the saying goes, you have to block it out to rock it out and I am committed to moving out of my comfort zone and into spaces with people that expand my thinking and inspire me to take courageous action in my life. I would love to hear from you. What is your word, quote, or motto for the year ahead? Reach out and let me know on Instagram or LinkedIn. Recently, I have been presenting staff wellbeing sessions to school staff across the country, and nothing beats the buzz of working with big-hearted humans in real rooms talking about really important topics. As a teacher, I have sat through countless presentations and thought to myself, this sounds great in theory, but how do I apply it in my life and my classroom? And this is why I love to share wellbeing education that makes sense and can stand up to the reality test of school life. When I present, I am drawing on years of teaching experience in schools across Australia and countless hours studying and learning from the best in well-being education. If you're interested in booking me to speak at your school later in the year, now is the time to reach out. Working in schools, energy is your ultimate currency. When you have energy, you make better choices. And when you're making better choices, you feel more confident to show up in more authentic ways. What would your life be like if you had more energy? What impact could you have on others if you had more energy? If you have been flirting with the idea of prioritizing your well-being this term, join me for a free energy masterclass Thursday the 16th of February where I'll be sharing four practical strategies that have helped me stay afloat during some of the most exhausting and overwhelming times of my life. Now on with today's show. Take a moment and check in with how you've been feeling lately maybe a little tired, stressed or burnt out. All the recent upheaval and uncertainty has left many of us not only feeling exhausted but also questioning who are we and what do we want from life. Yet instead of taking the necessary time to process and answer these important questions, many of us are feeling pressured to just get back to normal. But what if we want a better normal? The world has changed. We have changed. So when it comes to caring for our well-being, it's clear that we need new rules. Today, I have the joy of chatting with clinical psychologist Chris Cheers about his new book, The New Rule Book: Notes from a Psychologist to Help You Redefine the Way You Live. In this book, Chris invites us to re-examine five key areas, self-care, emotions, work, body and love and then offers radical evidence-based solutions to improve your well-being. Chris is a psychologist and educator with a focus on elevating mental health in the arts and the LGBTIQA communities. Chris is a university lecturer, an endorsed educational and developmental psychologist supervisor, member of the Australian Professional Association for Transgender Health, published academic, and PhD candidate at the Centre for Alcohol and Policy Research at the La Trobe University. Chris is a regular contributor in the media and his writing has appeared in Archer Magazine, The Guardian, The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. In this conversation we discuss how to embrace uncertainty, the importance of listening to our body, when self-care becomes a distraction and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Chris Cheers. Chris, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast.
1: Thanks, very Great to be here.
0: Today, we're going to be talking about your incredible new book, The New Rulebook, Notes from a Psychologist to Help You Redefine the Way You Live. And reading this book, I was cheering, like, yes, we need some new rules. And I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to read the forward, so listeners can get an understanding of what it is we're going to be talking about. What do you think about that?
1: I've never had someone read my words to me before. I'm very excited. Thank you.
0: Well, Chris, I'll do my best because I did avoid reading out loud at school. But this foreword has stuck in my mind and I think it gives us a beautiful introduction into our conversation and also a beautiful way to think about the year ahead so the forward is. We do so much to control the uncertainty of life. We create rules to live by in the hope that if we follow them, life will be okay. We choose a career ladder to climb with a promise that we will find success at the top. We play by the rules of the game of love and then we will never be alone. We exercise. We eat right. We get the grades. We do what's expected and and we please other people, all for the promise that if we do this, we will be happy. And when that doesn't work, people come to see me. As a psychologist, I have sat with many people trying to find relief from the uncertainty of life. People trying to end a relationship, to make a choice, or to have a difficult conversation. And more recently, I have sat with people as they try to deal with the sense of uncertainty brought on by a global pandemic, Climate change and war. People come to me with the hope that there is something I can say that will bring the relief of certainty. But certainty is not the only way out of struggle. We can also let go. We can surrender to the uncertainty. We can accept that much of life is beyond our control, accept that we were never on solid ground, that we can never know the future. This is how we can view life, not as a series of expectations we must meet or goals we might fall short of, but as a space of infinite uncertainty. But I get it. That sounds terrifying. Why on earth would you ever want to view life like this?
1: Indeed. Why Why on earth would we ever want to sit with so much uncertainty? That's the question I think I sat with for the whole book, because that's a question I've been sitting with for years, is I feel like especially, you know, recently we're going through the pandemic and so many lockdowns and, you know, we were all in this it was like uncertainty was this word everyone was using to describe how they were experiencing. And then there was this sense that it was meant to end at some point, that we were meant to feel okay again. The uncertainty was meant to end. And I think what people are really grappling with is it, is it isn't. And I wanted to try and offer a guide that, that says there is a different way. There is a different way to, to feel okay.
0: And so as humans, how do we naturally deal with uncertainty? Well, we
1: hate it, but we, we, we see it as a discomfort, as an uncomfortable emotion. And I think we grow up learning that uncomfortable emotion or discomfort is something that is telling us that we are doing something wrong or that we need to change something or that if we did something differently, we wouldn't feel like this. And that therefore we need to like control this discomfort or we need to distract ourselves from this difficult emotion. But I think what's really useful in seeing uncertainty is that it is an emotional experience and that it's there for a reason. It it is there because it's a normal reaction to something you're going through, a normal reaction to the world right now. So I think the first step is understanding that, you know, uncertainty and these discomfort, this uncomfortable emotion is there for a reason and we can start to make sense of it.
0: Do you think that prior to the pandemic there was a part of us that had this illusion That we were in control and the future was certain. And then the pandemic kind of threw that up in the air. And we had this realization of, oh, I was never in control.
1: Yeah, I think we started going questioning. You know, we were sort of offered a space, especially those of us who were in lockdown for, you know, months or years. We were kind of offered this space to reevaluate a lot because all of a sudden, these things we had to do, like go to work nine to five or go to school or do all these things that we had to do, suddenly we couldn't do. (laughs) And so all this certainty about these things that had to be was suddenly questioned. And I think it then allowed us a space which was really uncomfortable to start to question everything. Well, if I don't have to do that or if the world doesn't have to work like this, maybe it can work differently. And I think this is one way we tend to try and get out of uncertainty, we run to structures. And I think this is what a lot of us have done for a lot of our lives, is when we're feeling uncertain or when we're worried about something or we're feeling uncomfortable, we feel like running to the structure is the thing that's going to get us out. If we do what we're told, if we do what's expected, that will be the path out of this uncomfortable emotion. And I think this space now is a place where people are questioning that. They're actually saying... Maybe those structures that I thought were helping me out, that I thought were giving me this sense of certainty, were actually maybe leading me down a path of life that in the end is actually not giving me a sense of meaning or purpose that I'm looking for.
0: It's so fascinating to think that the last few years has brought to the surface probably questions that were always there, but they've just come up with such intensity everybody is looking at it. And also because we went through a collective experience, I guess generally in life, we have these questions that pop up, but it feels quite solo and it's your own personal journey. But as we went through a global experience, everybody's saying, hey, do we need to do this anymore? How is this working for me? I know in education, working with teachers, It was the first time that they had the opportunity to maybe go for a walk before a class or to go to the fridge when they wanted to or put some washing on the line to not feel like they were tethered to the timetable and the tight constriction. And so going back into that environment can be really challenging. And it does bring up these questions what are the rules and are they helping us? So I'm curious to know what are the old rules before we get to the new ones? What are the old ones and where do they come from?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of them. And for, for everyone, one way to, when I use the word rules in my book, so the whole idea is to question these old rules of, of mental health and well-being that we think were maybe working for us that maybe aren't and trying to propose these new rules. And when I use the r- word rule there, I, I just mean what are the expectations you've grown up with in your life that sort of tell you how you're meant to live. Sometimes we don't even notice these things as rules. We don't even notice them as expectations. We just see them as the norm. But the thing with just because something's normal doesn't mean it's the best thing for us. And that's what I mean when I say we've got to question these rules. We've got to first notice them, understand where they've come from, and and then we can start to change them. And I've tried to propose that the rules sort of break into five main ideas. So I look at love, self-care, body, Emotions and work. And I think when it comes to emotions, as we've mentioned before, the old rule is we need to control, deny, distract ourselves from uncomfortable emotion and do everything we can to get rid of these uncomfortable emotions. And I think the new perspective we can have there is how can we be open and curious towards our emotion? You know, teachers may be able to do this with children in the classroom through emotional literacy, but it's that idea of how do we, when we're experiencing an emotion, name it, and then ask ourselves, why does it make sense that we feel like that? How can we validate our own emotional experience rather than tell ourselves there's something wrong with us or something wrong with that emotion? I also look at love. And I think there's a really, I think we all grow up with this idea that love is about finding the one, whether it's through a Disney film, a book, through your family life, whatever it is, we kind of grow up, if we find the one, we find the soulmate, everything will be fine. We'll be happy, happily ever after. And I think that is something that just isn't working for a lot of us. Maybe we found the one and then they turned out to be very much not the one. And then, you know, we feel like the answer is to, oh, well, they just weren't the one. So if I just find the one, everything will be okay. Instead, I'm trying to propose that love is actually, it's not this thing that we find. It's not, it's not like you're walking along life and you just sort of, oh, there it is. Oh, there I found love. I found my soulmate. Everything's okay. We need to stop seeing love as an object, as a noun, like something we can find. And I think we need to really start seeing love as And a verb, love is an action. Love is something we do. So I talk about the actions of love. What are the actions of belonging? What are the actions of connection? What are the actions of safety? And I think we need to spend a lot more time focusing on improving the relationships we have rather than trying to search for the one. And then I look at things like self care. I question the focus maybe we have on self care. And maybe look at us care. What is it to actually care for ourselves and other people? And how can we bring that focus into our lives? Body, I think we focus a lot on old rules around being body positive, like loving your body no matter what, which if that's working for you, great. But for a lot of people, that can feel like a pressure that doesn't match with their experience. So the new way of looking at body there, I look at ideas of pleasure and what can we do to improve our body's function? Rather than looking at our body as something that we need to change the shape of, or the weight of, or diet to change, how can we actually look at our body and say, "What can I do to be healthier? What can I do to improve the function of my body? What brings my body pleasure?" And finally, work. And you know, whether you be a teacher or, or where you've ended up in your life, I think work promises this. This kind of ladder. It's like we're given a ladder at some point in our lives. This is your work ladder. And you have to climb it. You have to do these things to climb it. You have to follow these systems. And then at the end, I don't know, you'll you'll find success and you'll find happiness. And I think the problem with that is that ladder is given to you. It isn't defined by what you need or what is meaningful to you. So the new rule there is about how can we actually live a life not based in work, like making money, but rather based in living authentically by what is meaningful to you and, and your values in life.
0: This is what I loved about the book, that you set out these five clear areas, the old rule, why they were there, what was functional to a point about them, and then what we can do differently. How can we alter our perspective? And as I was reading, and as you're sharing now, that visual of really a cage, feeling trapped, like the old rules feel heavy, and you have to conform. There's only one way to be. And the new rules feel really light. It feels like freedom, liberation, expansiveness and openness. But in between that space is a lot of discomfort and uncertainty because the old rules, even though they're not working for a lot of us, they feel safe, familiar and predictable. So how can we start to even think about doing things in new ways?
1: I think it's about changing the goalposts in some ways about what you want your life to be, because we do get taught that life is sort of about, you know, whether it's about making money or whatever it is that you've grown up with to to kind of define that that's what life is about. It's about work or it's about buying a house or about being a good parent, we sort of grow up maybe at some point being kind of given this, this as you've called it, sort of a cage of like, this is what your life should be. The goalpost moving that I talk about is rather than life being about doing what's expected, maybe the goalpost can be, no, life is about living a life of meaning, living a life of authenticity. What does it look like rather than to be led by external expectation? What if I go internally what are my values what does living an authentic meaningful life look like for me like an easy way to think about that is when was the last time in your life you felt that you were doing something meaningful that you were doing something that was authentically you how can you change your life to make that happen more often and often that requires going against expectations and and if you can start to see that as the point of life to live a life of meaning to live a life of authenticity we can start to make meaning of the discomfort that's going to come when you try and do that. Because I can promise you, living a life of authenticity is hard because life is not set up to support your authenticity. Life is often set up to support some other system or structure around you. So all we can ever do is know that our uncomfortable emotions are part of the process of living a meaningful life. And this is a really, I think, one of the most important ideas that I've ever... I guess, come across as a psychologist is how can we look at our uncomfortable emotion, not as an indicator that we're doing the wrong thing. I think we grow up sort of feeling like if we're feeling anxious, it's because we're doing the wrong thing. So we stop doing it. And then we go back to sort of just living life as normal. What's really important if you want to kind of reach this meaningful life is to understand that Susan Kay, who wrote um, Emotional Agility, a great book that I quote, The book. She says that discomfort is the price of admission for a meaningful life. You need to feel discomfort. You need to have uncomfortable emotions. They're not an indicator you're doing the wrong thing. They are often an indicator that you're doing something that's meaningful to you. That's why it feels like that. That's why it's uncomfortable. So if we can start to make meaning of our uncomfortable emotions, it doesn't make them go away, it gives them meaning. And when we can give them meaning, we can give them space. And that's when we can start to ask ourselves that really difficult question, which I think I ask myself daily, what emotions am I willing to make space for in order to live the life I want? That's the reframe that I think can really change and shift the life you're living.
0: That is such a powerful reframe because I guess that traditional way of thinking about emotions is any discomfort, avoid, move away, too hard, numb, escape, do anything can possibly do to get away from it. And moving towards this discomfort is a message that this is meaningful for me. It's normal that I feel nervous before sharing my truth. It's normal that I want to run away before having that uncomfortable conversation. It makes sense that when I stop and give myself permission to rest, my brain wants me to do more jobs because it's uncomfortable. It's different and almost making friends with this feeling, knowing that it's a part of the process.
1: Yeah. And the really helpful example that a lot of people can understand there is grief. So if we've ever been through a really powerful, difficult grief through the loss of a loved one or some significant change in our life, anyone who's been through significant grief will tell you that it doesn't go away. What happens is we learn how to make space for it. We learn to give it meaning. We learn to allow it to be part of our life, but not overwhelming. And I think that's how we can sort of really view all really difficult, uncomfortable emotions with work is that they're there for a reason. They're our bodies. You know, emotions are our body's way of making sense of the world. From an evolutionary perspective, we don't keep things if they're not helpful. There is some reason our body has anxiety. It has grief. It has these emotions because emotions are one of the most wonderful complex system that our body has of making sense of the world your emotions when you walk into a room your emotions before your brain kicks into gear your emotions will tell you whether you're safe your emotions will tell you whether there's someone in the room that doesn't like you very much your emotions will tell you whether what you're going to have to do in that space your emotions help you make sense of the world so all this effort we put into distracting ourselves from them and controlling them, getting rid of them, we're actually cutting ourselves off, I think, from one of the most important meaning-making sort of machines we have that will help us actually work out what a meaningful life looks like for us.
0: And this takes us into the body piece because I think for so long we've been disconnected not only to our emotions but to our body. So when our body is telling us that there's sensations, that there's things going on, the old rule, like don't listen, just keep going. The show must go on. And so this is why I loved in your book how you talked about the importance of body and being in connection with the body and not just leaving everything to this idea of mind over matter.
1: Yeah. And I think psychologists are one of the worst people for this, that we focus so much on thoughts and cognition. And like, we almost promised that the way through problems is talking about them or through changing your thoughts. And, and I'm not saying any of that stuff is not all unhelpful. It's just that it's not the full story. And it, and it feeds into this myth. I think we have that, the way through pain or difficult times is through thinking about them differently rather than actually seeing, and we kind of separate mind and body. This is the great kind of debate of dualism that's been certainly going on for, for many, many hundreds of years. But I think psychology, because we've kind of got subsumed into the medical discipline, it means we started viewing things as, you know, mind is separate from body, that, that we were the science of the mind. And so we focus on the brain and we focus on thoughts and That sort of thing. The problem with that is, emotions are in the body. (laughs) And also, what we do with our body helps our mental health. You know, yes, going to therapy is helpful, but also exercise is helpful for our mental health. Eating in a way that pleasures our body and is nourishing is helpful for our mental health. And understanding stress is something that happens in our body. And therefore, we kind of learn that the way through stress is maybe talking about it. But I think the way through stress is you need to process the stress through your body. It's something that you process through exercise or breathing or going for a walk. All these things help us process emotion and help us process stress. And so I really think we need to spend a lot more time noticing our body and listening to our body because I think we learn to not listen to it. And I think school is one place where we first kind of start doing that. You know, If you think about a kid at home before they go to school Maybe they can listen to their body. When it's hungry, they can go and eat. When they want to go for a run, then go for a run. When they want to rest, they can rest. Then they go to school and it's suddenly this first time where they're given a strict time where you're allowed to eat or a strict time when you're allowed to rest or a strict time when you're told to do this. So we introduce this idea that no matter how you're feeling, no matter what your body wants, it doesn't matter. You have to adhere to to the system. And when you do that time and time again, I think it creates this expectation for us to cut ourselves off from our body and our needs and instead do do what's expected. And I think that sticks with us throughout adult life.
0: And from your experience working with clients, what can be the impact of disconnecting to our body?
1: Well, burnout for one is the one that first really comes to mind. I think Burnout is this word that, that we're really using a lot these days to describe, I guess, where people are. But my understanding of burnout is burnout what happens when you ignore your body for long enough. You know, our body tells us all the time when it needs rest, whether it, it doesn't just yawn, it like we start to get more reactive to things. We start to get more stressed. We start to feel more anxious. We start to make silly mistakes at work. We start to nap in meetings. You know, all these, our body is screaming at us. You need to stop. You need to rest. But the system or the structure around us says you can't or we want to please people so we don't or we don't want to let someone down so we don't. If we don't listen to our bodies for long enough and we cut ourselves off from those signals, I think that leads to burnout. And when I say burnout, I use that as kind of an overarching term to talk about a lot of, you know, mental health challenges around depression, anxiety, that these things really are often an outcome of pushing ourselves too far and not listening to our own needs and, and what our body needs and just pushing through. And I think this is what we've sort of seen coming out of the um lockdowns. And you know, I certainly don't want to say that we're coming out of the pandemic because obviously it's still present. And and I think that's a really important point to make that the stresses, the death, the the anxiety, the the related to COVID are certainly very present, but instead, whether it be through government messaging or through from your friends and family or just culture at the moment, we're sort of being told to just push through. You know, this this idea of living with COVID, people are dying with COVID. You know, it's that this sense that we should just push through and get back to normal. I think it's a really good example of what what I'm talking about when I say we're given the choice to do what's expected or to do what we need. The idea of just going back to normal, I think people are just noticing that doesn't work for me. That doesn't work for my body. That's not what I'm ready for. I can't just go back to normal. And that's why we're in this space now, I think, where people are maybe, they're in the uncomfortable space. They're questioning what is, they're questioning what they're expected to do, but they're not quite sure what to do, what their life should look like. And I would say if you're in that space, sit in it, take space in it, be okay with that space and take time to really consider what do you want your life to look like how can you make changes to your life so it better serves your not only mental health or physical health not that they're separate things how can you make changes to serve your health to make your life what you want it to be
0: I love how you're giving permission for us to sit with it to be in the discomfort and not have to know the action plan straight away it's almost like we want to take one ladder the ladder that we know with all the rungs and we're like, okay, that ladder's not working. Okay, let's find another ladder and find it somewhere else. And instead of moving towards finding the right way, just being with what is, and learning through our body. What does my body need in this moment? I don't know what the future holds, but I know that my body needs this from me today.
1: I think it's uh, Sonia Renee Taylor, who's an amazing writer that I quote in the book as well. She has a book called The Body Is Not An Apology. She talks about these ladders and she says, yeah, it's not about finding another ladder. That's what we sometimes think the way out. It's just find the other ladder. She says, knock them all down. What does life look like if you don't have a ladder? And if you don't have a ladder what that forces you to do is live by what you need in each moment in each day what does my body need what do i need today that that's what life looks like not living with the ladder and it's difficult and it's hard but i think it's a space that it's the only way i think that we can live meaningfully and authentically is to step into that really difficult place and also to play i think this is something you know especially as educators and teachers you know you'd be used to children have this ability to play to use their imagination (laughs) when we're in play we don't need to know where we're going we don't need to know where it's going to lead we're okay with just coming up with new ideas or playing or you know using our imagination and in the book i invite people to play a lot more and when i mean that i mean give yourself space to just sit down and think about what do you want your life to look like what could tomorrow look like could things be different and your brain like mine we'll go immediately to, but I can't do that. Or what are the steps to making that happen? Or, but I need to make money, but I need to pay the mortgage. But all those things are very true and valid. And I'm not saying they don't exist, but it's also useful to just for like half an hour, try and disconnect from that part of your brain that's trying to plan and future think through everything and just Play and dream because, in that space, that's I think is where we can start to really see our world differently or see our life differently. And then we can start taking small actions that start to make it look a bit more like that.
0: And it's not so overwhelming if we give ourselves the space just to flirt, just to think about how could I consider a new reality here instead of feeling like we have to commit. A path today for the rest of our lives.
1: Yeah. These ideas are big. And anyone listening to this, I want to say, I know this is big, difficult stuff to hear. You know, I'm talking about, you know, dropping down all the ladders of of expectations of life and, and redefining your life. I know these are big concepts, but what it looks like in practice is not big and unachievable. The big dreaming playing bit is big ideas. Absolutely. But the action of it is just, you know, I mean, thinking about what's something you can do tomorrow that's really achievable, that looks like the kind of life you want to live, that is meaningful to you. So, you know, mine might be, you know what, it's meaningful to me to have connection to my to my family. So tomorrow, I'm just going to send a message to my mom to just say, hey, mom, I love you, you know, thinking of you, can't wait to see you next week. Takes a minute, send it, That's the kind of action I'm talking about. It's really achievable, doable stuff. But we can't know the actions that make a meaningful life unless we give our space to really consider what a meaningful life looks like to us. But then putting it into practice is really achievable little actions that I invite people to take because little meaningful actions add up to a meaningful day and a meaningful day adds up to a meaningful month, meaningful months, meaningful year, and then you get a meaningful life. That's big to start at that bit. It's big to think about that giant idea. It's really achievable to just think about what's something I can do tomorrow that looks a little bit more like how I want my life to be.
0: And we're releasing the pressure from ourselves to have it a certain way. Thinking of a concrete example for myself at the moment, I'm just starting a book writing process. And for me, the idea of a book feels completely overwhelming, too hard. But the fact that I've got a process, I'm just going to take it step by step. I will eventually get there. Do I know what the book's about? No. Do I have a general idea? Kind of. I don't really know. The book coach that I'm working with, she said, Meg, this book that you start writing is probably not going to be the one you finish writing. So that's even freedom to think, well, I'm going to have four versions of this thing anyway. And knowing that I can be with the uncertainty that I don't know what it's going to be, what it's going to look like is actually giving me comfort where if I think 10 years ago, if I was doing a project where I didn't know the finish, the outcome, the path, duration, every little detail, I would feel completely overwhelmed. I would be like, well, what will people think? I can't do something without an end result. And just noticing the shifts now that I've got the ability to be with that discomfort. And it feels more like a co-design process rather than I have to get it nailed down now.
1: Yeah, it's sitting in the process rather than the outcome is another way to talk about it. How can we start really thinking about, you know, today and every day is part of a process of, you know, in your example, is part of the process of writing a book. How can I take joy in that process? How can I end each day thinking about success in terms of what did I do today that contributed to that process. What did I do today that looked like the kind of person I want to be? Or in your case, what did I do today that contributed to that process of writing the book? And allow yourself to feel rewarded by that and to feel that you are living a life of meaning in that and each day. Because the alternative is when we get too stuck in focus on long-term goals. You know, that so your long-term goal, there being too right, you know, to finish the book. The problem with long-term goals, I think, is that, you know, we miss the part that is actually there's so much about achieving that long-term goal that's out of your control. There's there's parts of it that are in your control, but whether you're whatever your long-term goal is, there's so much of it that's out of our control. And we sort of tell ourselves that the way to achieve things is by sheer willpower. That if I just work hard enough, if I want this enough, I can achieve it. And the unfortunate byproduct of that belief that like I can do it, I can do anything is That when it doesn't go right, it's totally your fault. That you feel like it's the self-criticism starts, the shame starts, because you've told yourself that the thing is totally in your control. You just have to try hard enough. That's untrue. There are so many external factors in your life that may come between you and the end of that book. So when we focus too much on the outcome, we sort of set ourselves up for two things. I think we set a space where we're walking on the ice of like self-criticism. At some point, the self-criticism, the shame will kick in because we're so focused on that long-term goal. The second thing I think we've opened up is we kind of put ourselves in a deficit of how good we feel about ourselves and worth until we get that long-term goal, because we're not going to feel good enough until we achieve it. So I would say this is kind of a complex idea, but I often talk about getting rid of long-term goals and doing two things, having dreams, which are the things way in the future that through that, through the play, we can imagine our life to be different dreams. I think are really helpful but they're not actions. Dreams are just kind of big, beautiful ideas. I think it's great to have that space. Whenever we're talking about behavior, just think about actions, which to me, an action is something you can do in the next couple of days. An action is something that will lead to your dream, but it's just just something you can do in the next couple of days. And the beauty of that is the thing that leads to behavior change in life is not sheer willpower. It's actually the sense of achievement you get, every time you achieve a little thing. But if you haven't set an achievable little action, you're not going to get that sense of achievement. And you're not going to get that sense of motivation that that leads to that long-term goal. Unfortunately, what you'll end up often getting is shame and self-criticism, which never inspired anyone to achieve anything. So that's the magic of, of I think, looking at actions rather than kind of focusing on outcomes and long-term goals.
0: That is such a beautiful way to think about it, having this blurry, beautiful vision in the future and then thinking about, okay, within my reality, what is one thing that I can do today?
1: And feel good when you do that one thing. And you might do two things, which is great. You'll feel even better, but it's great. It's better to set the low bar and to achieve over the top of it because you feel really, really successful. And and that sense of success is is really powerful to to motivating you to go on. I th- and Another way to consider it is way more important than the goal is actually the attitude towards yourself when things don't go right. You know, if you don't achieve your action tomorrow, like if you don't write your 100 words or whatever your tomorrow action might be, way more important than that goal is actually going to be how do you feel towards yourself when things go wrong? How can you show yourself kindness and compassion? Because behavior change and big long-term change and changing your life is really hard. And so things are going to go wrong. You're not going to achieve things all the time. And the thing that's going to allow you to keep moving on is being, you know, as I say, being kind and carry on. Be kind to yourself, set a new goal and start again. Because the goal wasn't, you know, you weren't the problem. The goal was the problem. It's like when you, if you buy a pair of shoes and they don't fit, you don't blame your foot. You get a different pair of shoes. We need to look at goals in the same sort of way. If you didn't achieve it, It wasn't achievable. What's something that is achievable? Set that and try that and be kind to yourself as as you try and do this really difficult thing, which is trying to live a meaningful life.
0: And this is where I loved your conversation around self-care and looking at the old rule and the new rule. And I also really found it fascinating how you highlighted that self-care can sometimes become a distraction from making real lasting change. Can you talk to us a little bit about that?
1: yeah self care started as something that you did against the system to care for yourself it started off you know in these big radical sort of political movements that's where self care sort of started out especially sort of black feminist movements to question the structures and to act against them in this kind of resistance sort of way to to care for yourself i think that idea is wonderful i think acting against structures to care for yourself is exactly what most of my book is that kind of self care is great i think What's happened, what I've sort of noticed over the last few years, is the industrial complex capitalism has kind of taken self-care and turned it into almost like a product. It's turned it into something that we have to buy something or we have to do something. We just have to kind of do self-care. And no matter what's happened wrong in our life, as long as we do enough self-care or we buy enough self-care, we're going to be okay. And I talk about this in the book in terms of like filling up your cup. That, you know, with this kind of metaphor we hear all the time of, you know, every day we start off with a full cup and then we do things, we lose liquid out of our cup. So we've got to keep doing things to fill up our cup. I think the problem there is we sometimes miss the point that there might be a leak in the cup or maybe there's something in your life that needs to change significantly. So maybe you need a new cup. If you just keep filling your cup up all the time, if you just keep doing self-care and thinking that's the way out, you might be missing the bigger picture of some of the significant changes you may need to make in your life, whether that be you know, ending a relationship, changing job, moving somewhere else, making some significant change in your life. Self-care is the first step to good mental health and well-being. It's not the last. And I think the individualism that self-care encourages, this focus on self can also mean that we are distracted from the ideas of focusing on community. And I think that's something else that maybe the pandemic is starting to show us. You know, we were isolation, you know, I think it was Irvin Yalom who, who says that isolation is the universal symptom. And obviously the extension of that then is connection is the universal cure. I think the issue with self-care is it's often not grounded in doing things that are connect to others or doing things for the collective or doing things for the community. So I think self-care is the first part of the journey, but I think a really important part of anyone's wellness or, or mental health well-being journey has to be, what are you doing to connect to other people? We are social beings. Our bodies need that connection. It's what leads to good mental health and well-being. And the wonderful thing of that is you shouldn't just do things for other people you know, because you want to please them, doing things for other people, for the important people in your life, it helps them, but it also helps you. It is about doing things for our community and culture and the, the important people around us, not because we feel like we have to, but because we can see that doing things for our us, as I call it, us care, who is your us? And what can you do for your us? And the, the reason I call it us care is the beautiful thing about us. It's, it's about you and other people, you know? So what can you do that benefits you and the people in your life. And I think a focus on self-care might sometimes miss the ability to, to see that, to see what are the greatest social inequalities or the greatest systems that also need to change um, or the greater changes you need to make in your life for your mental health as well.
0: I love that evolution of self-care, thinking about the educators that I work with, a very common experience is, they come to me, they're caring for everybody else. The idea of self-care feels hard, but they want to really try it. And then they find that once they're starting to care for their body, creating space, starting to feel charged, they've got a little bit of energy, then they naturally want to do things with other people. And they do it with people with a different feeling. Instead of a feeling of, I have to resentment, bitterness, like, oh, more jobs. Gosh, they need me again. It's more like, oh, I've got presence. I've got time. I want to be with other people. So it really is this evolution over time that as we do engage in self-care practices, we can then be with the us. We can be with the people that we love because it's really hard to be in relationship when we're exhausted, when we aren't caring for our body and our mind.
1: What you're also pointing out there is the idea that if we set up a life that's about self-care or caring for other people, if that's the only way we view life, that, okay, we're caring too much for other people, we need to care for ourselves. Oh, we're caring too much for ourselves, we need to care. If that's how we start to see life, you know, I think that's where we become a bit of a cropper. I think the important thing to notice is that there are things you can do for other people that do drain you. Absolutely. But there are things you can do with other people that are good for your mental health and wellbeing. Just like there's things you can do for yourself that are great for yourself. There's things you can do for yourself that actually may not be great for you in the long term. So we've got to sort of question this idea that life is just about doing things for others or doing things for yourself and actually kind of acknowledge, no, there's things we can do that are actually great for us and, you know, for them.
0: As people begin to flirt with this idea of engaging in a meaningful life and new rules, what are some encouraging words you can give to them, or maybe even permission as they're embracing this journey?
1: Well, I love the word "flirt" there because I think the the I, the book is really colourful and beautiful, and it's quite short and accessible. And I did that for a reason. I wanted this to be something that people felt that they you know, could just dip in and out of, that they could just play around in, that there was something beautiful that they could read that maybe made them think a different way. I don't want it to be heavy. I want it to be light. I also didn't want it to be something that was like this calming wellness book. I wanted it to be something that did motivate people. Calm, calm sometimes isn't really motivating. This isn't one of those ones that's going to just tell you to, you know, breathe and and be mindful and calm. I want this to, in hopefully a really compassionate, kind way, allow you to flirt with the idea of making big change to your life. Not make the change yet. We don't have to worry about that bit. Just flirt with the idea of what those changes might look like and what are some little things you can do. So I guess my advice for people is to, this might be a difficult question, but I think it's a really useful question that I often think about. Is And I use this with clients and family, friends all the time. I often say, you know, is it working for you? You know, whatever it is that you're doing in life, is it working for you? If it's working for you, keep it up. But if you can look at your life right now and you're like, this isn't working for me. This thing I'm doing, this job I'm doing, this relationship, the way the relationship looks, the way my work looks, the way I'm caring for my health, it's not working for me. If, if that's the feeling, know that you are the only one that gets to decide that. You're the one that gets to decide whether something is working for you or not. No one else. And if it's not working for you, just ask yourself the question, what emotions are you willing to have to change this because there will be really uncomfortable, difficult ones. But if you're able to look at those emotions and realize that they're part of the process, that no one has ever changed their life, feeling calm all the time, that know that they're part of the process and validate them. And I think one of the most important questions you can always ask yourself is what am I feeling and why does it make sense that I feel like that? Keep asking yourself that question as you try to change your life. And I think you'll be able to start to change that perspective that to see that your emotions are actually helpful rather than an unhelpful part part of the
0: process. Chris, to wrap up this incredible conversation, I would love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that?
1: Yeah, let's give it a go.
0: I am inspired by?
1: A strong female vocal in music. I like, I return to music all the time when I'm feeling low or need motivation. And it's always a, a strong female vocal that, that I need.
0: When life feels hard?
1: I breathe and try to slow down.
0: An underrated skill is
1: listening. I would say we. I think we all think we're good listeners, or, it, or we think that we're listening when we're not. The skill I teach it at university, and I teach masters psychology student, and actually just getting them to sit down and not talk. <laughs> you can often say, if you're if you're talking, you're not listening. So that's the first rule. To just sit down and listen, and then reflect what you've just heard is, I think, one of the most underrated skills um, that that we can develop in life.
0: And I'm looking forward to.
1: Can I just say my book coming out?
0: <laughs> yeah I it's finally it's been a
1: long process, it's and yeah, finally first of February, it'll be out in the world and I'm yeah really
0: excited. Chris, thank you so much for writing this book. It is an absolute gem, and I agree with you. it is one of those books that you can dip in and out of so it doesn't feel overwhelming, it feels quite welcoming and it's inspiring to take deliberate, purposeful action. So thank you for writing this book. Thank you for the work that you're doing in the world. And thank you for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast.
1: Thank you. And thank you for creating the space to talk about these ideas and and for being so open and connected to these ideas.
0: I hope this conversation has opened your mind and empowered you to take deliberate action in your life so you can feel function and relate better to learn more about today's incredible guest and the wonderful work they are doing in the world see the show notes for all the ways that you can connect if you're ready to reclaim your spark and join me for this round of energy by design my game-changing well-being program for educators see the show notes for more details if you love this show please share it with anyone you think would benefit from listening or reach out to me on instagram or linkedin and let me know what resonated most with you To learn more about the ways that I can help you and your school community thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak at your next event, learn more about my game-changing wellbeing programs or download my free five-step energy guide. You can find all the links in today's episode at openmindeducationcom forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week.